listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. big deal over time about how we have two realities that we can look at um, and I mean the tradition is filled with the articulations of these, these two realities. One is the unenlightened reality and then one is the enlightened reality and another way of putting this is one is contracted and one is expansive. One is uh, bound by situations and the other one is unbound by anything and we tend to look at enlightenment as being that shift that we can take it's like we get a, like a transplant from the bound and we open to the unbound and that that's, that's the way we tend to look at awakening and I would say in some circles that's entirely accurate I would also say that it's more or less um, halfway of where a contemporary approach towards this work really needs to go and uh, um, there's nothing too radical about that it's fairly common sense but it's instead of going from the contracted if you will to the uncontracted or the way I sometimes say circumstantial living to ultimate life we also need to come home from that space. We need to come back from that opening to this ultimate life. Usually shows up in some manner of speaking uh, as if we are, we find that we are living as reactions to all of our circumstances and that this causes uh, us to identify with certain things that we like and certain things that we don't like, attachments to this and to that, to this person, to that person, to this idea, to that idea, to rejection. We tend to live like a, uh, I've described it as a weeble. Those little toys, you know, when you, they, you, you push them and they come right back up, right? Um, we live that weeble-esque, new word, a weeble-esque life where we're just constantly getting knocked around. It's constantly getting, and we eventually right ourselves, but we then get knocked back and so forth. We're, we're more or less as much off-center as we are centered in that circumstantial life. Moving into the ultimate life actually isn't something, it's not something we go to as much as it's something that works th itself through us. We just have to be open. And that's not easy, especially when we have all this psychological stuff that we're dealing with. We have all this biological apparatus that you know, perceives threats. We have our own histories, our own contexts, our own stories that we bring to our life that put us on the defensive. Every one of us is defensive in some capacity, in some way, some to a greater degree than others. Every one of us has fear some to a greater degree than others. 
But one of the areas we can look at in relationship to the teaching is that all of that fear, all of that insecurity comes from a what-if mentality. And that what-if mentality is something that is rooted and oriented in a deeply circumstantial pit we call future. We're always looking at the future. Well, what if, you know, when X or Y or Z happens, then maybe, right? And this fear, or its lesser, you know, version stress, uh, or its lesser version anxiety or whatever, is perpetuated and actually begins to run our lives the moment we lose sense of what actually is. Another way of putting it is our minds take us out of ultimate living and continually reorient us back towards circumstantial existence. There's no way we can help but being reactive to circumstantial life that is built on the future. Similarly, if we are living lives of... uh, pain, especially if we feel scarred, you know, or we feel damaged, as opposed to being fearful of what might happen, we're oftentimes pissed off and angry at what has happened. And here again, we're in that pit, call it past. And if we live with a past orientation, what typically we will find is that the memories tend to guide our activity, our choices in circumstances. Once again, we become reactive. I know I may sound like a spiritual version of Steve Covey or something. You, know, you don't want to be reactive. You want to be proactive. Okay? Well, to a degree, there's tremendous validity in looking at it in that way. Because if we are always reacting to the activity of our minds and our minds are always rooted in past and future, we are never able to unfold into and welcome in the present. The present is a gift. Pardon the pun, but it's true. That present moment awareness is what you have always at your disposal, which is usually what we do with it. We throw it away. We usually throw it away and go into the future. Yeah, but, you know, or, God damn, I'm so pissed off that we're, you know, we're all, we're doing that. We're weebling and wobbling. Great quote from, uh, I believe it was Yun Men. He said, when sitting, just sit. When standing, just stand. Above all else, don't wobble. That's not the exact quote for those of you who are going to try to like take that on the Google. You'll find that I'm wrong, but more or less, it was. It, I remember hearing that for the first time and going, "Yeah, it's about being upright in the face of whatever is, whatever discomfort, whatever anxiety or fear we may have. Can you be right in that fire? Our tendency is to ditch. Try not ditching. Try being right there." Try being right there for it. And what you will find is, instead of being bound by circumstantial reactivity, which is always about dodging, bobbing, and weaving, running, you know, walking, hiding, 
we start living lives of exposure where we are totally exposed to what is and we meet it right there and we see that no matter what the situation is meeting it fully allows for us to meet it with integrity to meet it with a radical honesty as I sometimes say that's the birth of freedom right there because if you're meeting your life fully as it is you're meeting the present moment put another way the present moment is meeting itself through this body you are opening to the truth beyond name and form the one that the ancients have talked about for eons and you get to live it that's the precious gift that's given to each of us at birth we just have to be ready to receive it meditation like we're going to do tonight for about 30 or so minutes readies us for that gift awakening is an accident meditation makes you accident prone shall we Don't wobble. (laughs) So to carry on with this theme of circumstantial versus ultimate living, Um, we can count on a couple of things among them that circumstances are always going to arise no matter what no matter what there, there will always be circumstances how we relate to those circumstances will forever be um affected by the level of consciousness we bring whatever the circumstance may be so it might be something if we're going to evaluate the circumstance it might be something really really awful it might be something breathtakingly beautiful whatever it is the consciousness that we bring to the circumstance allows for that circumstance then to either guide us towards the heart of awakening or to keep awakening at bay Once again when we're talking about awakening we're talking about opening to the ultimate or absolute or to god or to spirit or whatever to consciously flow through us to to offer this transplant or reorientation towards something that's bigger okay it really kind of eradicates fear it eradicates uh or it eradicates our our relationship to fear it eradic it shifts it so so dramatically that it's almost hard to call it fear it does the same thing with our pain and our our suffering pain and fear may arise how we deal with them becomes a choice that's informed by the spaciousness we bring to our experience and the spaciousness is cultivated the more we meditate 
So anyway, these circumstances will arise. How we deal with them, how we meet them, that becomes our art. Uh, And one of the things that we can all look at right now, in this moment, is uh, a guide, I guess kind of a guidepost towards towards our, uh, where we cling, where we hold on. And any place that we hold on is where we kind of keep, keep uh, opening, uh, a potential opening, we keep it closed. The way you can tell, one of the best ways, is by studying your preferences. Preferences can be subtle. Attachments we tend to think of as, as overt. I'll give you an example of an overt attachment. Uh, whenever I am with my girls in parking lots. I'm overtly attached to some, sometimes so much, I'm so overtly atta- attached to them that I grip them. My four-year-old said, Daddy, loosen up. <laughs> now, I've heard that expression minus the daddy for m- much of my life. So that's nothing new, but it was still kind of cute. There is an attachment that I bring into that experience, okay? I have an attachment uh, towards... um, I have a hard time watching anyone inflict pain on another being. There's an attachment there. Uh, And so those are kind of obvious. Now, how I meet those attachments becomes something that I work with continually. This process is not something... You know that it doesn't kind of land as much as it's something that's always always kind of flying, and so we continually are are working to stabilize our our awareness, stabilize our realization, stable no matter where we are on the spectrum of awakening or the continuum of practice. To get a little bit more subtle about this, and this is where it can get fun, look at your preferences. I prefer that I not have illness I prefer that now if I follow that preference really deeply my attachment is to life sickness tends to remind us that we are here temporary in a temporary way we're all going to croak eventually now that's not something we necessarily want to dwell on but it is certainly not something that we want to avoid in fact allowing that Reality in is a way of opening to the truth that all things are temporary, including this body. Or maybe it's, it's more profoundly felt if we say, including that body, someone we love. They will be taken from us or we, we will be taken from them. Typically, we won't go at the same time. If we do, that's either kind of a miracle or a brutal tragedy, depending on how we meet it, depending on how we look at it. Okay? how we look at it, our perspective that we bring to the temporary nature of all things is exactly how we can measure the extent to whether or not we're opened or closed by circumstance. A preference also, a benign preference for me. Chocolate that is 60% or above. It's a benign preference. White chocolate is not chocolate, damn it. Oh, attachment, get the idea. Okay, right? 
so we can begin to look at our lives with this really cool study tool, which is where do our preferences show up most readily? Where are they most subtle? Sometimes there can be really, really interesting, subtle preferences that show up in terms of style. I had a friend who worked in an optometrist's office, and that was one of the questions that he would ask all the time. Well, what's your preference between this, you know? And when it comes right down to it, what do you really care about? You care about being able to see clearly. But also, there's something so cool, so enriching about one's life experience when we can add panache through a particular style. Well, what is that panache, that preference towards a particular style, unfold? Well, it's different for each person. If we cling to it, we can become slaves to fashion. And we've all seen when people are in that space, it may look kind of cool, but we can also see a kind of imbalance oftentimes with the individual who is a slave to the way they present themselves to the world. Yeah, you with me? And the same thing can go the opposite direction. Someone who is a slave to never looking presentable. That's the same thing. It's just colored differently. It's the same same uh, coin, different side. So we get to look at that. We get to look at our preferences. Our preferences will always point us in the direction of where we're clinging. And the attention that we bring to our preferences, by extension, the, the attention we bring to our, 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 our clinging, the attention we bring to everything is like bringing light into darkness. We study ourselves, as Dogen says, we study ourselves to forget ourselves. And when we forget ourselves, we are enlightened by all things. Put another way, we open ourselves up totally to allow ultimate life to radiate through this deeply circumstantial body. So, preferences are always arising, reminding us of our attachments to things, to ideas. I happen to prefer, as many of you know, the news hour to Fox News or to CNN. Um, I would prefer that CBS would figure out a core group of people to have in the morning and leave it alone for at least <laughs> six months. It's a preference. <laughs> but these preferences are always going to arise and they're always going to give us a gift they're always going to point us in the direction of our attachments our attachments are always going to arise and they're going to point us in the direction of what we would call our delusion our delusion is actually what's blocking awakening what's keeping it from unfolding through us Delusions are always arising. But they're always going to remind us of awakening itself. So in this way, and I spoke of this briefly last week, everything, 
everything is an opportunity to awaken. Everything. There isn't one situation, there isn't one circumstance that doesn't offer us an ultimate life. Circumstantial living, being bound, actually shows us where the limitations are to exactly what we can then go past. And this is what meditation shows us. This is what practice shows us. This is how a group, a sangha, a dharma or teaching, okay, a teacher or Buddha and not just me. I mean, I'm saying you and every other thing that you run into is Buddha. Everything offers itself up as a teacher. What's left for us to do? Choose. And it's a beautiful moment, I think, when we can recognize that all we have are choices to make, and every single choice either takes us closer to or further away from awakening. Every choice. When we can live in that space where we are careful and yet utterly spontaneous, we become the teaching. We become awakening. Awakening isn't something that we do or that we get. Awakening is something that gets us, that becomes us. So this circumstantial life is the path. Put another way, I hope this doesn't sprain too many brains, but... uh, The path itself is delusion. There's no path, really. On the one hand. On the one hand, awakening is always already right here. On the other hand, we have some very significant work we need to do. So, which is true? They're both true. Just like circumstantial living is true, an ultimate life is true right now. There is awakening right now each of us I love the the, uh, uh, Lama Surya Das talks about awakening the Buddha within so to speak yeah that awakened being is already present within you it's already there banging on the let me out okay I said it with a slight Pakistani accent there Buddha was actually I think Nepalese so it would Think about that. Are, are, you, are, are any of us really interested in maintaining that prison for what's truly great, what's truly open, what's truly free? Everybody would say, no, no, of course not. Why do you think the hell I'm here? I mean, you know, I want to, want to learn how to do that. And the way we learn how to do that is to openly meet everything we've always learned every story we've always heard every story we've written and co-written we begin to examine the self we begin to examine these preferences okay we begin to examine our life fully all right and we start to see that every single quote-unquote misstep that we might take is actually still an opportunity for us to awaken to what is beyond the prison 
of future fear and past pain. It's always here. What's the shortcut? What's the way to do it? Sit still. Sit still. Begin to let that stillness, as simple as the practice is, let that stillness and all of its richness and complexity begin to occupy a significant amount of your day-to-day. You may occupy Wall Street, but it's best if we occupy this skin. Occupy your cushion fully. Not just 99% of it, but totally. Just for the amount of time that you can afford each day and push it a little past that. Do that for a while. Do that for a while and see what happens. See what gets kind of shaken loose. See what cages begin to kind of open within you. See what things on the outside of you you start to recognize. My gosh, this circumstance right here is just an amazing opportunity for me and everyone else in my life to open to something a little more consciously. It never ends. There's always a chance. There's always a chance. Time for some Q&A. If anyone has uh, anything that they would like to, to query. Yes, sir? You said that everything is involves choices. I wonder what techniques you suggest to know you're making a choice. To know? What techniques might one use to know that you're making a choice? Yes. That's right. And so so it's a great question. And my my answer is going to sound maybe a little twisted and weird, but deal with it. Um, you're never not making a choice except for things typically like breathing unless you make yourself aware of it, like blinking unless you're making yourself aware of it, right? So it's an involuntary experience to blink um, uh, unless you become hyper aware of it right and so we can look at our our life choices when we take them you know step not just physical like breathing or or uh, uh, or blinking instead of making those conscious we bring the same type of awareness to anything that we might be facing during our day 
and I can think of it like blinking. Okay? Usually we'll go through the choice making process blindly. But what this practice does is it kind of slows us down enough to where we can do everything with tremendous attention or what we call mindfulness. Okay? And so my recommendation is start with the big stuff, especially when you feel uh, uh, miffed, you know, angry. Those are, those are the easiest because they're the most obvious. And what we can do in order to put the brakes on, just slow down a little bit, is take that breath before there's either a response, either verbal or uh, through our action. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the basics. That is a choice. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So if you can make the breath a conscious choice, when it usually takes care of itself, you can make your mind and all of its activity a conscious choice, whether to indulge it or not, whether to, right? And so we start in those, those, those places where the rub is greatest because it's the most obvious. And the beauty of the practice is that, that it goes at ever more subtle levels, uh, you know, oftentimes very quiet. You know, they're not things that we, that we notice. And it, it's one of the cool things. I mean, as long as I've been doing this, I'm still continually uh, surprised and enriched by the potential that every day offers for both blindness and clarity. So start there. See, see how that works. Um, and then report back. You said also that delusions right, arise all the time. How do we recognize those? How do we recognize and delusion? That, and is that a Another matter of choice. Is it, whether whether or not you recognize it, it starts it starts on on uh, uh, a recognition of delusion. Always is going to orient itself. Here's let, let me back up. Here's how I would uh, I would offer a, a, a uh, practice for recognizing delusion. Okay, delusion arises whenever the I sense, I me mine. Okay, whenever that unconsciously meets, deals with, and executes circumstance. Okay, so it's always it's always available. It's always there. Like right now. Like right now, right. And it's also something we can let go of. It's something we can actually go past. Okay, and. That happens when we are able to watch our eye sense, when we can watch it do its little dance, do its little jig, do its thing, right? The watcher of that is not bound by what the ego is doing. It can't be. It's a deeper, more broader, more grand subject to the ego or eye sense or mind, which is much smaller. So as we bring that awareness then into experience, as we have the moment of wow, and that the subject of that wow is the ego's play, you know, then we now, we now have a choice to either indulge the delusion that the ego is operating under or the awakening that this witnessing awareness radiates through us. 
So we can either become, if you will, an agent of ego or a conscious expression of what's beyond that. And delusion is precisely ego's arena. So all we've got to do is put ourselves in that arena. We just watch, watch that arena, watch what's happening in it. And then it's, it's as if, I, I sometimes describe it as continually backing, backing out, right? And the more we can kind of back out and then simultaneously bring that opening back into this body so that we can participate on that, in that world of delusion, participate consciously, what happens is that world of delusion becomes something, a little, it's a little bit less diluted. And we sometimes refer to people that can do this as bodhisattvas. I have a follow-up question. Sure, sure, please. When you're beyond ego, mm-hmm. when, or however one would say that, <laughs> right? is there still a, a mechanism to make choices? Absolutely. 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 When we are beyond ego, there still is a mechanism to make choices. Okay? Um, and you know, what that, you know what that mechanism is? Body. It's body that's unfettered by the attachments of ego. Okay? And we call this embodiment. For we are embodying conscious choice making that isn't limited by the ego, but isn't in, it doesn't eradicate the ego in order to make the choice. Ego then becomes a tool. Ego becomes a tool when we are in that space. The, the, the mechanism involves ego. We still need to get to work on time, whether we're enlightened or not. Right? And ego is going to help us get, get there. What we're no longer bound by when delusion becomes less and less and less weighty is ego's clinging to its own agenda to satisfy its own needs. There becomes a deep helpfulness that we can kind of bring in, which goes back to my bodhisattva comment. You know, we become these just helpful, helpful beings, and we're not excluded from that mix, too. We're helping ourselves be more open, be more kind, be more engaged. Thank you. You're very welcome. Great questions, by the way. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. matter of how you're witnessing 
the circumstance. <laughs> I don't Not how you're witnessing the circumstance, how you are participating, right? So let's, let's, let's unpack this a little bit so we can be really clear. I want to make sure I'm really clear on the question, but it sounds pretty damn cool. You're saying that the first, the first line of questioning I had you guys answer was articulate how you are in this moment, right? Without using the personal pronoun I, right? So you had to, you couldn't do that without checking in, right? And the checker inner is another, that's the witness, you had to employ witness there. And yet there was still a mechanism for you to respond to that, that question. You, you had to witness and then deliver a response. Then the second round, what I had you guys do is say, what keeps you small? Or what, what reminds you of circumstance, what keeps you bound by circumstantial living? Plus, what reminds you of ultimate life? And your point seems to be that whatever keeps you small also invites you to be big, which is exactly the point of this entire Dharma talk. Okay? <laughs> yes, yes, very good. Because what so often where we go with this, Barb, is we tend to think that, oh, no, no, all this mess that I'm in is unenlightenment. And if only I could get enlightened, everything will be ultimately cool, right? And that's not the way it works. The way it, it tends to work is, boy, I'm in the midst of all this crap right now. <laughs> Isn't this amazing? That's the way it works. It's a deep attitudinal shift that's been brought about not by false, you know, I'm just going to think about things differently. There's no denial in this at all. There's radical acceptance. There's total honesty about what is exactly happening right now. And in that now space, what happens to past pain and future fear? They tend to kind of fall away. So what are we dealing with? Instead of a world of hurt, we're dealing with a world of situation. Right? Instead of this being a tragedy, this may indeed be tragic to the mind, but to what's beyond the mind, it's a circumstance that must be melt with, melt with <laughs> that we must melt with in order to offer a compassionate, helpful, appropriate response. Yeah? Thank you. And thank you.